0: Out, we're gonna we're gonna take this on the road we're gonna have fun with it uh, it's great to be with you uh, for those of you who don't know me my name is Tim Rinquist I'm the executive pastor here at Deer Creek Church and it's just a privilege to uh, get to share with you this morning before we jump in uh, would you pray with me uh, father we uh, thank you for the opportunity to gather together this morning it's kind of a weird thing that we do but it's it's also a, a very sacred and special thing uh, we get to sing your praises and to be reminded of your goodness and love. And I pray now that as we look at your word, you would speak to us, and that you would show us uh, what our response ought to be. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, recently we as a church uh, were given access to a demographic tool that allowed us to study our area here surrounding the church. And we looked at about a five-mile radius around the church... And the results were, were pretty fascinating. Uh, one of the things the survey showed us was uh, primary life concerns for people in our area. You want to guess what the number one life concern for people in our area was? It was time. Time. To be more specific, it was a lack of time. It's not that they had too much time. It was a lack of time for rest. About 50% of people in our five-mile radius of this church, this building, are stressed. They feel like they don't have enough time to rest and they don't have enough time to spend with friends and family. It's the primary life concern of people in our area. We're overcommitted, we overwork, and we're just plain stressed. In our culture, I think it's, it's pretty hard to find time to rest. We, we do long for uh, that word balance in our lives, but as our, our, one of our readings said, we, we also want everything else. We want the fast-track career, uh, we want the smart, well-adjusted, good-looking children, and we want a manicured lawn as well. It makes it hard to find rest. We see this in education with students. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of pressure, like there always has been, to fit in, to be popular, to be cool. Uh, but, but even today, more than ever, um, grades and college placement and college prep is, is huge. I remember when I was, I think I was 14 or 15, I came into high school, and one of the first things I heard everyone was saying is, you have to join Key Club. You have to join Key Club. Everybody's going to do it. And I felt like I was walking down the hallway, and then like, the whole crowd turned into the gym, and we got in the Key Club trap. And uh, they handed us a t-shirt as we walked in. I was 14, but I knew enough. I, was, I think I just committed to something by taking this t-shirt from them. And they started talking about community service and how we're all going to do community service and this is going to be great, this is awesome, and, and how this will look great on our college resume. Again, 14 years old, I didn't know you needed a resume for college. Apparently, you actually don't. That's just kind of an idea, your college resume. My primary life concern at that time was um, every day, I need to consistently apply deodorant. Every day, get deodorant on so that the girls don't like run away from me in the hallway because I smell bad. That was my primary life concern then. So a college resume was like way, way beyond me. So I I dropped out, not of high school, of Key Club, (laughs) of Key Club. I never served an hour or a minute in the community as part of Key Club but I have the t-shirt. Isn't that pretty cool? There's just so much pressure, and I was not ready for it. And grades, I mean, think about this. Uh, Everybody's average, more or less, but no one can be average when it comes to grades, because average would be a C. And so everyone needs to be above average, at least a B, and for most, the expectation is you need to be outstanding. Everyone needs to be outstanding. Everyone needs to get an A. And this pressure adds to the workload of students. And it's just hard to find time to rest when you're a student. We also see this in in simple things like our homes. You know how everyone's home is supposed to look like spring cleaning was the day before? Even if it's like the middle of winter, oh you just did spring cleaning yesterday. But what, what I've observed, and maybe because we have small children, is everyone else else's house is always clean, but our house is always messy. I don't really, until someone's going to come over and then, wow, our house is super clean all of a sudden. And this just keeps us busy, it's hard to find rest. Probably the biggest place we, we all feel this, um, if we have marketplace jobs, is, is in work. The, uh, the businessman Jack Welsh famously pioneered the forced ranking system of employee management. Sounds kind of cool which is apparently used still in uh, some form by many companies today. Another name for it was the 2070-10 system. So the idea is that you rate everybody. Everybody who works there is rated, and if you fall in the top 20%, then you just affirm those people. You love on those people. They're great. You want to keep them. If you fall in the 70%, then you know, you want to teach them how to get into that top 20. And so you give them coaching and training and encourage them. And You can get to that top 20. And if you fall in the bottom 10%, then they'll kind of show you the door. And the idea is that you're always improving performance, people are always working harder, and things are always getting better. And, you're, and anyone who can't cut it is, is just cut. And it's attitudes like this that result in this reality. Americans work more than anyone in the industrialized world. We, make, or we take less vacation, we work longer days, and we retire later, too. In this world we live in, it's busy, it's hard to find rest. Well, I think it's interesting that this is not a new thing. Our situation is actually not so different from the people of God in the past, specifically the Israelites when they were in Egypt, it's not exactly the same, but, but it's similar. There's some similar dynamics at play. And so we're gonna uh, look at an account of their work life, of the Israelites when they're in Egypt in the book of Exodus. So this is the second book of the Bible, and we'll, we'll be looking at Exodus chapter five, if you wanna click there or turn there uh, with me. A little bit of background. At this point in their history, the Israelites are in Egypt, and their, their numbers they had lots of kids and their numbers grew really large. And the Pharaoh of that day said, uh, we should enslave them. This is a ready-made workforce. Let's, let's take them on and let's have them build all of our building projects. And through a series of events, uh, God raises up a deliverer whose name was Moses. And his brother Aaron kind of tags along for everything as well. But uh, they go to the Pharaoh and they bring a message from God. And it's this, let my people Go. Let them stop working for a period of time so that they can go and worship me, hold a festival in the wilderness, so they can go out and worship. And this is where we pick up the story in Exodus 5. Pharaoh responds by saying this in Exodus 5, um, verses 4 through 18. Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy." Make the work harder for the people so that they will keep working and pay no attention to lies. So in response to this request to let my people go, Pharaoh actually makes the work harder. Now they have to make the same number of bricks, but they're not going to be supplied with any of the straw that they need for those bricks. And verse 10 goes on to say this. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, This is what Pharaoh says. I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather the stubble for straw. So let's pause there for a moment, just put yourself kind of in their shoes for a second. It's interesting they use the word stubble. So it's not like big stacks of straw. They're, They're pulling stubble out of the ground and gathering that so they can make bricks that will hold together. And I imagine maybe the first day they didn't have to walk that far to find the stubble. And they were able to get it and bring it back and make all the bricks that they were required to make. But each day they probably had to walk further and further. And they had to travel back and make bricks into the night. But eventually they couldn't keep up. They couldn't make the bricks that were required of them. and, And this is what happens. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. And the Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they appointed, demanding, why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? There's a simple, we don't have any straw, there's there's an answer to that, but then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh, why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, and yet we are told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, and the fault is with your own people. And this is what Pharaoh says in response. Lazy. That is what you are. Lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce the full quota of bricks. Now, they couldn't make the quota, so they had to work harder and harder. They must have woken up every day and said, okay, I need to make 200 bricks today. I don't, I don't know what a normal brick quota was in Egypt, but I need to make 200 bricks today, and I only made 160 yesterday. And today I actually have to walk further away from the worksite to get the stubble, and so I'm probably not going to make it today either, and so they're going to beat me. And this happened day after day. Make bricks, no straw, no rest. Make bricks. This is the experience of the Israelites in Egypt, their slavery in Egypt. And it was their history, but it wasn't the end of their story. The next couple of chapters in the book of Exodus, we see God intervenes in a miraculous way and he delivers them out of Egypt and he brings them to a mountain, actually, Mount Sinai. Where he gives them the Ten Commandments, and today we're going to look at all ten of these commandments. No, I'm just kidding. We're going to, we're going to look at one of these commandments. Um, just wanted to make sure you were listening. And uh, this is the Sabbath commandment, the fourth commandment. It's uh, the, the word Sabbath means to cease or to rest. And uh, everything I've said up to this point is really background information, but it's really important because without understanding what their history was, the command to Sabbath really doesn't make any sense at all. And uh, so the Ten Commandments are listed in two places in the Bible. They're listed in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5. And we're going to look at Deuteronomy 5 and spend most of our time here in Deuteronomy 5, if you want to turn there. And this is slightly different than the command in Exodus, and it adds a really interesting detail, so that's why we're looking at it. Now, the Ten Commandments, interestingly enough, start with something that is not a command at all, but a reminder. They start in verse 6 by saying this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. It's such a fascinating way to start a statement of commands because it's wrong. That's, That's the wrong way to start a list of commands in the ancient world. There are examples that we have of other groups of people who started lists of commands and how they did it. There's one right here that we'll have on the screen. Um, This is a Hittite treaty. The Hittites were other people that lived at the same time. And this is how they start their list of commands. When in former times, Labarnus, my grandfather, attacked the land of Elusa, he conquered it. If you're gonna give someone a list of commands, this is how you're supposed to start it. You recount the conquest of a group of people, And then you list out the expectations. Here's what you're supposed to do. You need to be obedient because remember we conquered you? Well, God here is going to give them a list of the Ten Commandments. And he starts in a really weird place. He starts with a statement of rescue and not of conquering. It's the wrong way to do it. You're supposed to exert your authority and then tell them what they're supposed to do. But he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And it's it's so interesting. The commands of God come not from a slave overlord, but from a rescuing king. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. It's a small tweak, just a couple words difference, but it, it changes everything. See, their relationship with God is not based on their level of obedience, on the number of bricks they could produce, you could say, but on their status as God's rescued people. Now, I sort of get this uh, because we have children, and this is kind of how things work in the rinquist household. We have a two-year-old and a one-year-old. And uh, the reality is we have rules. And as parents, we want these rules to be followed. Very much so. We want these rules to be followed especially around sleep. We want you to sleep at a certain time. We want you to wake up at a certain time. There are other rules as well, but that's the one we feel most acutely. And uh, <clears throat> our girls, we have rules for our girls, but they do, these rules do not make them our children. They already are our children. And then we just say, this is how we live in our household. So if they weren't to obey those rules, that wouldn't make them not our children. This is just how we do things in the Rehnquist household. In the same way, God is saying, you are my children, valuable, worth rescuing. You are objects of my love and affection. And now, this is how you're supposed to live. That's how the Ten Commandments start. It's upside down, it's wrong, but it's beautiful. And A few verses later, we get maybe what is the weirdest commandment. You know, uh, don't worship anyone before, have no other gods before me, don't worship images, those all kind of make sense. This one... Doesn't doesn't really make a lot of sense. It's weird. It's the wrong kind of commandment for that culture. It says this in uh, Deuteronomy five verse twelve: Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servants nor your ox or your donkey or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. It's a pretty extensive list there, but basically making the point, anything that can work is not supposed to work on this day. And then he adds this, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. In contrast to the Pharaoh of Egypt, the God of Israel does not say work harder, make more bricks with no straw, no rest. He says, stop working. Sure, six days, do everything that you need to do. There's work to be done and work is a good thing When it's done in the right proportions, but one day a week, stop, cease, rest, Sabbath. And he tells us why. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath. When when you stop and think about it, this command might be one of the most gracious commands ever given by someone in power. If you're a boss, uh, would you include this in your top 10 expectations for employees? I want you to you know, value integrity, the customer is always right, and stop working. No, you, you never would never include that in the list. If you're a parent, would this be in the top 10 for your kids? In your neighborhood, you know, you can paint your house this shade or that shade, your roof shingles must be like this, and we want to be a community of rest. Would would never make the list. Teachers and and parents of students, um, would your college prep list for your kids include a well-balanced life of work and rest? No. This is not what you do when you're in power. You have people work, do more, make more bricks. But God says, stop working. It's amazingly gracious. And yet the funny thing is, we often, uh, we don't rest. We don't stop. And I think there are good reasons for this. In our culture, and, and even sometimes especially in churches, when we aren't producing, when we aren't achieving, it feels like we don't have value or worth. We don't measure up. Uh, George Bernard Shaw, an author and poet, uh, famously said, You must all know a half dozen people, at least, who are no use in this world, who are more trouble than they are worth. Just put it to them and say, Sir or Madame, now will you be kind enough to justify your existence? <laughs> it sounds kind of funny, but actually uh, he was a proponent of eugenics, which was kind of the improving of the human race by filtering out people that were less desirable. And so he actually meant, "Please justify your existence," or kind of "get out of existence," was kind of his point. That's pretty harsh, actually. Justify your existence. Well I think it's possible uh, that maybe the reason we overwork and overcommit and push ourselves to the point of stress is that we're trying to do just that, to justify our existence if we don't get the best grades, if we don't have the career track that we wanted, if our house doesn't look like everyone else, if our kids are not turning out, then we don't have value. Or people will not approve of us, so we work harder and harder and harder. In essence, we opt for slavery when God offers us Sabbath. I think because like the Israelites, sometimes it's all we really know this is how you're supposed to live. Personally, I really struggle with this. I'm um, kind of a type A personality. So I, I love achievement. I love progress. Um, I love the thought that tomorrow will be better than today because of what I did today. And that drives me, you know, many times day after day. The truth about this is uh, it makes me struggle with contentment. Because the reality, when you do the next thing, you realize there is a next thing after the next thing. You never really reach the end of it, so you can never be satisfied with just where you're at. There's always another brick to be made. Sounds a a little bit like Egypt. Uh, Dr. Timothy Keller puts it this way, anyone who overworks is really a slave. Anyone who cannot rest from work is a slave to a need for success, to a materialistic culture, to exploitative employers, to parental expectations, or to all of the above. These slave masters will abuse you if you are not disciplined in the practice of Sabbath rest. Sabbath, he says, is a declaration of freedom. The the truth about us is we don't really need a Pharaoh to enslave us. We're pretty capable ourselves. And Sabbath is the antidote or an antidote to this problem. It's a declaration of freedom, he says. Well, if he's right, if this is true, how do we actually do it? How do we rest? How do we make time for rest? I want to take just a couple minutes to look at two things that we see in this command to Sabbath, two commands sort of within a command. And the first one is the word Observe observe the sabbath it says by keeping it holy by setting apart one day every week for the sabbath for rest make it special make it distinct from all the others work six days sure work is a good thing We're created in the image of god and he worked and he calls us to work but then one day every week rest take a sabbath in our family, this, uh, this takes a certain form. Uh, we have small children, so we light candles, and um, we eat ice cream every Sabbath, only on the Sabbath. Because if you want kids to like something, just give them ice cream associated with it. It's kind of a Pavlovian thing. Um, they will love it. And they do. They, they love it. We do this every Friday night uh, to Saturday night, or try to, um, just because Sunday's really not an off day here so much. And uh, So we, we, tr- we try not to rush around make too many commitments. Um, and then Saturday night we eat popcorn always because then mom gets kind of a Sabbath from making a meal. And, uh, we watch a kid's show. Dora the Explorer is always a part of our Sabbath. Um, and our girls, they love it. They love it. Elsa cannot say the word Sabbath without lighting up, without a smile on her face. And, and ice cream's great. And Dora the Explorer's great. And, uh, And they love all that. But for them, I think the biggest thing really is that daddy doesn't have to work, is what what they understand about the Sabbath. And they know that daddy is resting and daddy's trying to be present. And that totally changes their perspective on that day. It's set apart. It's special. So so that's what we try and do. And we we don't always get it right. Uh, Some weeks things come up, life happens, and, uh, you know, it wasn't very restful uh, and we'll, we'll try again next week. But that's, uh, that's how we try and observe the Sabbath. He says, observe the Sabbath. But that's, that's not the only thing. He also says, remember. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. It, it's so good that he puts these two together. Observe and remember. Because it's possible to rest to, to stop working, but not actually rest. Not actually be renewed by our rest. Uh, you've all experienced this, I think. You sit down to watch a football game or watch a TV show, and when you get up, you feel about the same. You thought, wow, I was, I was resting, but you weren't actually really resting. That's not really that restorative for you. God says, remember the Sabbath day, and part of that is, is he says, observe the Sabbath day, and part of that is Remembering. As you rest, and you experience Sabbath rest, you remember that you are not a slave. Because of Jesus and his rescue, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are not a slave. You are not a slave to the opinions of others. You are not a slave to the expectations of others. You are not a slave to your work. You are not a slave to your boss. You are not a slave to your studies. You are not a slave. And that's where the Sabbath can bring deep rest that just physically resting sometimes can't. Again, Dr. Timothy Keller is helpful here. A Sabbath is about more than the external rest of the body. It is about the inner rest of the soul. We need rest from the anxiety and strain of our overwork, which is really just an attempt to to do what we said before, to justify ourselves. To gain the money or the status or the reputation we think we have to have. We need to remember, we need to be reminded that for me, I am not defined by what I do, but by who I belong to. And the same is true for you. The one who rescued you defines you. You are not defined by what you do, but by who you belong to. If you're a follower of Jesus, the rescuing God of the Sabbath, I would just suggest to you that's why coming here to worship is so important. It's a a stake in the ground every week to say, I am going to come and remember. I'm going to remember that Jesus loves me. I'm going to remember that yes, I do fail, and yet he forgives. I'm going to remember that my life has greater purpose and meaning regardless of my circumstances my job title, my house, or my grades. I'll be reminded that I am loved and accepted, that I am not a slave, but a son. The same is true for you. You are not a slave, but a son or a daughter. And that's why we come to worship. And that's what we're invited into as part of the Sabbath command. We're actually invited into the rest of Jesus. Here's a, an, an interesting question you've maybe never thought about. What is Jesus doing right now? What do you think Jesus is doing right now? Is he busy? Is he, is he very busy? I mean, he's got an important job, so he probably should be kind of busy. Do you think he's working? Is he like a, a manager running all around heaven, making sure that angel got there and that thing got done and that happened? What is Jesus doing right now? In the book of Hebrews chapter 10, we actually get an an answer to that question in verses 11 through 14. In this uh, this section of the book of Hebrews, it's talking about the priest, the priest that worked in the temple. And it says this. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Uh, But when the... When this priest Jesus had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins he sat down at the right hand of God and since then he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy See the priests in the Old Testament they were always busy Always running around. And God knew this. And so when He gave them the instructions for the temple, He didn't give them any seats, which is kind of interesting. If you know if you were ever a waiter or no waiter about waiters, they're always on their feet. They're never sitting down. There's always something to do. That's kind of what the, the priests were like. No sitting down because their work is never finished. Uh, but Jesus finished his work. And his work, one way to summarize that is it was a rescue mission. He offered himself as a sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sins, to rescue us. And once he was done, he sat down. He rested. This is like, uh, you ever had a boss that put his, feet, his or her feet up on the desk at the end of a long week? You know, that, that just tells you, it, the work week is done. Or when you kick back in a lazy boy recliner and put up your feet, you know, okay, the work week is done. Jesus is resting, completely calm, at peace, not, not unsure of the outcome. He's not rushing around heaven, busy doing work. He's resting. That's what he's doing. And, and uh, if that's true, since Jesus is resting, we can too. We can observe the Sabbath. We can remember that because Jesus is resting, we have nothing to prove. We do not need to justify our existence because he already has. We can stop making bricks. This really is the gospel. This is the good news about Jesus. He did all the work and he offers us true rest. We can stop I can stop. We can rest. I would just suggest to you, you should try it. If, if this is not a part of your life, is this, if this is not something you ever tried, sometime this week, try not working. For, you, for many of you, this could look different. Uh, maybe you go digitally dark. Just shut off the phone, shut off computers, maybe shut off the TV. I know that's a tough one, but just just Stop. Maybe that's too extreme, and so you'll, you, you want to ease into it. You dip your toes in the water, and so you, you take a half day or part of a day where you're just disconnected from work. Do the kinds of things that restore you physically. I've always found this interesting. A Jewish rabbi, Abraham Heschel, would say this, a man or a woman who works with his hands will Sabbath with his mind. And a man who works with his mind will Sabbath with his hands. I experienced this yesterday. I I washed my wife's car. Um, A lot of my work is mind work, and so I just loved. Like there was dirt on the car, and I sprayed it down, and the dirt peeled off, and it was just like I could sing almost at the car wash. It was amazing, and it was just. But I. But you. You know. You think of that as working. Like you're working. Well, I'm Sabbathing with my hands or I'm saving with my hands because I work with my mind. Just to say, it might look different for each of us, but figure out what restores you physically and figure out what restores you spiritually, the things that will help you remember that you are not a slave. Experiment with it. Enjoy the gift of the Sabbath rest that God offers. And I, I you know, I, I live like I don't believe this but I know that it's true. The world will keep spinning if I'm not steering, and the world will keep spinning if you're not either. So God says, observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm Therefore, the Lord, your God, has commanded you to observe the Sabbath. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you uh, that you are so good to us. And that your commands, they they don't come from an oppressive pharaoh or a slave overlord, uh, but a rescuing king, and they're actually really good for us. Forgive us when we try and justify ourselves. When we work to earn something that you offer for free. Help us to practice what you invite us into. Help us to cease from our work. Help us to follow Jesus who offers a rest that no one else will. For we pray this in his name. Amen.